urgent need for us to tackle the climate crisis. Yeah, so it's really a crucial decade. Impacts of climate change and the risks that these pose to our society. We need specific plans and actions to drive the CO2 emissions down in the shorter term. The climate crisis is the world's most critical challenge right now. Hello and welcome to the Sparks podcast series. I'm Jens Nielsen. And I'm Zoe Hazeman. And we'll be your host throughout this special edition podcast series, brought to you by the World Climate Foundation and Jacobs. Come with us as we take you on a journey around the world to explore how different countries are tackling their climate challenges, sparking ideas and inspiration. From clean energy innovations in Scotland to sustainable buildings in Dubai, we'll be interviewing global green leaders, financiers and entrepreneurs about the policies, investments and innovations that are accelerating our progress towards a resilient and sustainable world. Our podcast hopes to educate and inspire, sparking real conversations with the intention to collaborate, act, commit to real change. Climate change affects critical elements of our environment and health by intensifying existing health threats and supporting the emergence of new global health problems. Climate change is exacerbating respiratory and cardiovascular diseases, injuries related to environmental changes, as well as food and water, safety, security and changes in infectious disease patterns. The World Health Organization estimates that between 2030 and 2050, climate change will cause 250,000 additional deaths per year and will increase costs to health by two to four billion dollars per year by 2030. In addition, climate change is a major contributor to complex emergencies that are more frequent now than ever. In this episode, we speak with Dr. Nino Karishvili, Global Solutions Director at Jacobs, and Ms. Andrea Retzeknigo, Deputy to the CEO and Deputy Director of the Converging Risks Lab at the Council on Strategic Risks about health and climate intersection and how it impacts the global One Health initiative and our common ecosystem. We'll be exploring geographical areas around the globe and examine population categories that are the most affected by the climate change and complex emergencies. We'll also be discussing some actions that policymakers and leaders around the world need to take to build population resilience towards adverse effects coming from the climate change. Andrea and Nino, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for Thank having you. us. So let me start with you, Nino. Can you explain what the global initiative One Health is and how the health of people is interconnected to the ecosystem? Thank you, Jens. Yes, of course, I would love to explain that. So according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the One Health approach recognizes that human health is very closely connected to the health of animals and our shared environment. One Health terminology is not new. It has been around since 19th century, believe it or not. However, the current approach to One Health is strengthened by numerous lessons learned and examples where health and well-being of one component in an ecosystem system is impacted by another. Simply put, the human population has experienced a tremendous growth in the past decades, which means that we have expanded in new geographical spaces and have increased our contact with flora and fauna. And matter of fact, 75% of human infectious diseases are zoonotic, which means that they can affect both human and animal population. And when we increase our contact with animals and their environment, it increases chances of disease transmission. 
So in short, the health of ecosystem cannot be separated from the health of all humans, all animals, plants, and their living environment. So changes in one component affect all participants in the ecosystem. That's a basic explanation of One Health. And just a follow-up question on that. Now with COVID-19, has the One Health concept become more important in terms of future pandemic preparedness? Definitely. The COVID-19 infection and the whole pandemic Uh, how it's unfolding in front of our eyes has improved the awareness of stakeholders and population around the world to understand One Health concept and use it a little bit more frequently in their practices, especially when it comes to the healthcare stakeholders and uh, policymakers and decision makers in the governments around the world. Thank you. So Nina, what are some, can you give some specific examples of climate change's impact on human health and what's the medical community seeing as a result of these? Thank you, Zoe. That's actually a very good question. And you brought some examples and statistics in your introduction that are pretty eye-opening to people, I'm I'm assuming. But I would like to um, add maybe a few more examples. And I would love to start with infectious diseases and particularly with vector-borne illnesses that are transmitted by mosquitoes, ticks, and like, like, et cetera, organisms like that. So prevalence, severity, and seasonality of vector-borne diseases are very much influenced by the temperature and precipitation patterns. So just to bring more concrete example, let's talk about uh, Rift Valley fever, which is an acute viral hemorrhagic fever first identified in 1900, and it was an investigation in a sheep farm in Kenya that discovered this particular virus. However, the same virus that was affecting the sheep in in Kenya was later discovered in humans as well. So causative agent, Rift Valley fever virus, is transmitted from animals to humans by different species of mosquitoes. And this is one of the transmission modes. And most people with RVF have no symptoms or mild illnesses. However, around 10% of population can develop more severe symptoms, including viral encephalitis, and that can be life-threatening. You would ask me, like, what does it have to do with climate change, right? But let me link those two together. Research and recent research shows and forecasting and modeling that the outbreaks of RVF, increased outbreaks, were linked with increased rainfall during the rainy season, which promotes and supports the growth of mosquito population and therefore increase the likelihood of disease transmission. So changes in weather pattern is directly linked to human health and in this case to increase of infectious diseases. And we can bring many examples like this from infectious diseases, but I don't want to neglect the other components in human health that are affected by climate change. And I want to mention extreme high temperatures, extreme high air temperatures are contributing directly to death from cardiovascular and respiratory diseases, especially among elderly population. Also, pollen and other allergens are more active, so to speak, in the higher extreme temperatures. And this can trigger asthma and other respiratory illnesses that affect 300 million people around the globe. And obviously, it aggravates the disease burden. Also, natural disasters. 
right? Maybe you will be asking me what natural disasters have to do directly with the health of population. But every year, these natural disasters, which, by the way, have tripled in occurrence since 1960s, they cause around 60,000 deaths on a yearly basis and mostly in developing countries. This is a staggering number to me. And floods and extreme precipitation also impact food and clean water supplies. And this directly impacts societal and environmental factors of population. So therefore, also increasing the likelihood of waterborne diseases, foodborne diseases, and etc. So the laundry list of health conditions can be listed here. I obviously don't want to bother everybody with listing all of this, but there are many, many negative impacts of climate change directly on human health, as well as indirect factors that can cause or aggravate underlying conditions, health conditions in um, population. Thanks, Nino. That was quite the staggering um, report on some of those implications. Andrea, you're working on climate change impact on national security issues and geopolitical impact. Can you elaborate on those connections and what it means? Sure. So climate security issues for the sake of this conversation, we can break them down into three buckets. So the first is the direct impacts on people and infrastructure. The second is kind of the indirect impacts translating into risks within states themselves. And then the third is indirect states between states. So the geopolitical angle is where that kind of ties in. So in that first bucket, just quite briefly, as we've seen as recently as this month, you know, we've had deadly flooding and widespread infrastructure damage in New York City because of a hurricane, entire towns inundated in Europe because of intense precipitation events, wildfires burning entire areas across Europe, Turkey, the US, Canada, Australia. Then we have those indirect risks within states. So climate impacts as Nino mentioned on food and water resources, climate impacts intersecting with migration patterns from, for example, rural to urban zones, sea level rising and more densely populated urban coastal zones in countries leading to disease outbreaks, as, as Nino referenced. You know, an example I can think of right now is Nigeria. Rapid rates of urbanization along the coast, particularly in Lagos, which is vulnerable to sea level rise and flooding, which can lead to health risks in, in the state. And then climate change, desertification and instability are pushing people out of the northern part of the country and combining with ethnic nationalist tensions and clashes. So then when we arrive to that last bucket, which is the indirect risks between states, that's, as I mentioned, where the geopolitical angle comes in. The Arctic right now is an incredibly popular example when it comes to this bucket. You have higher temperatures melting ice at such rapid rates now that it's making a zone completely navigable when it never has been. So you have open shipping lanes now, you have access to critical mineral deposits, oil and gas reserves, permafrost melts, nuclear powered vessels traversing this area. So essentially geopolitical competition is all converging in this one part of the globe. It's high stake and it's the setting for, for great power rivalries. So in that sense, in the climate security arena, we frequently say that climate change is a threat multiplier. So bringing this all together, as global temperatures rise, these extreme events will be increasingly layered over other vulnerabilities and as they intersect with other risks, right? So this has currently and will continue to produce cascading or simultaneous crises, or in other words, complex emergencies. This is an overlooked yet incredibly critical angle, in my opinion, and a nexus that, that we're struggling to address. 
Thanks, Andrea. So you mentioned complex events or situations as complex emergencies. How do we start to unravel them, like with all the different multiple stakeholders at government level and international level? How do you start to actually even think about what a solution could be with, with something as complex as that? Sure, it's a great question and it is quite a complicated, multifaceted issue, right? So to set the scene, we have to understand what could make up a complex emergency. The coming decades will be characterized by significant disruptors, as we've already mentioned. So climate change, biological hazards, natural disasters, technological changes, these growing geopolitical tensions, an increase in fragility amongst different states, persistent economic shocks. The list is endless, but that's a good list of what risk we are currently facing and which we will continue to. So these issues obviously do not exist independently of each other, right? They will intersect and lead to cascading effects that strain entire systems. We have arguably been living through a complex emergency, including climate and health issues these past 18 months. This past year, several parts of the world experienced hurricanes, monsoons, typhoons, droughts, wildfires, you know, catastrophic flooding layered over a pandemic and subsequent economic downturn. This strained governments and political stability across the world. And to bring it down to specific examples, you know, we saw an extreme winter storm in Texas knock out a vulnerable electric grid during a pandemic. A super typhoon in the Philippines at the end of 2020 propelled the evacuation of over 1 million people during a pandemic. Historic wildfires across the Western United States and Canada, Turkey, all during a global health crisis. To add to this and to kind of break it down further, when I say cascading in regards to complex emergencies, sometimes one crisis in many instances actually leads to or exacerbates another. You know, for example, for the sake of, of this conversation in terms of health and climate, in 2020, huge wildfires swept across the Western United States, including some of the worst ever in California and the state of Washington. Harvard University recently released a study in the journal science advances that stated that something like 20% of COVID cases in counties of those states were directly linked to elevated levels of wildfire smoke. So you have that, that correlation. We're already seeing it, right? Another example right now of a real-time complex emergency is in Haiti. You know, they were grappling with the pandemic as we all were, but then they experienced a disastrous earthquake. And then a few days later, a tropical storm that hampered recovery efforts to address that earthquake. And during during all of this, you also have an incredibly destabilizing assassination. So you have a health crisis, plus a climate event, plus a natural disaster, and then you add governance fragility, and that is a complex emergency. You know, these disruptors, as we're seeing, are already converging. You can layer an infectious disease issue, as, as Nino mentioned, over all of these, and, and questions then arrive in terms of preparedness, state resources, when we're confronted with, in the future, perhaps a deadlier pathogen or a more severe outbreak. And in my opinion right now, responses are quite frankly not great, but anticipating and preparing for these kind of complex and simultaneous emergencies are critical as we move forward into the, into the 21st century. Thank you. I'll put this question to both of you. What are governments doing to address the issue of climate change impact on human health? 
Thank you, Andrea. That was a very interesting explanation and just exploring how complex emergencies can impact and worsen health population because unfortunately we cannot have health pandemic like COVID-19 in isolation, right? It affects so many things and just some other things happening at the same time. It worsens the pandemic management and it's just eye-opening how quickly things go down, go south. But let's, let's turn on a positive note, right? I want to maybe just because I'm in the United States, I want to maybe um, announce some of the things that are happening here in the government. So a research has been showing that climate change affects uh, human population and health of population for a very long time. And I'm very proud that Biden's administration recently established a federal office under the Department of Health and Human Services to address the health consequences of climate change and their disproportionate effects on poor communities specifically on disadvantaged communities. The office is called the Climate Change and Health Equity, a great linkage that brings two seemingly different but very related issues together. And it will be the first office aimed specifically at understanding how planet warming, greenhouse gas emissions from burning fossil fuel also affect human health. And great move on the administration side, and I'm really looking forward to see the office's activities in the future. They have some seed funding that they are receiving from the government, from the Congress, and so hopefully they will contribute to much better practices being established in the United States and you know steer the population to the better health. Also, I don't want to fail to mention the Race to Zero Global Initiative, and it's a very critical initiative. It's a global campaign that rallies support from businesses, cities, regions from different investors, and that is to create a healthy, resilient, and zero-carbon recovery pathways. And various cities and businesses are part of this alliance, and collectively, these actors now cover almost 25% of global emissions. And objective it, and I want to quote this, to build the momentum around the shift to a decarbonized economy ahead of COP26, where governments must strengthen their contributions to the Paris Agreement, and this will send governments a resounding signal that businesses, cities, regions, stakeholders are united in meeting the Paris goal and create to create a more inclusive and resilient economy. This is very critical in my in my mind, and we need to promote the initiatives like that and see more of this in potentially in more developing countries because that's very critical. I just wanted to mention a few of those activities and initiatives that are very critical to creating the positive impact at the end of the day. So building on on Nino's examples, clearly, as as she stated, there's so many governments and organizations and initiatives that are trying to address these issues. The Council on Strategic Risk, we recently released a report that both assesses kind of bringing in the health aspect here and climate that assesses the current state of biosurveillance in the world and offers some recommendations. And in that report, we really break down the regions and the initiatives. And for example, to discuss a region I don't think is given enough kudos for its move to try to establish an early warning system, some of which incorporate disease and climate change exacerbated natural disasters, is Latin America. There's growing signs of cooperation across nations in this region and indicators 
indications that many of the states here, as well as uh, in other parts of the world, seek to build out kind of a pathogen early warning alongside systems for other types of disasters that we know are made worse by climate change impacts. I'll give one example. In Mexico, they have something that's called the Centro Virtual de Operaciones en Emergencias y Desastres, known as CVOED, and they run a software system that provides real-time support and communication capabilities to areas experiencing crisis, emergencies, and or natural disasters, right? So they collect and monitor information from multiple sources in order to detect and respond to those hazards that pose public health risks. And so this system is, is pretty ideal because it provides tools pre, during, and post a crisis you know, such as emergency documents and plans, real-time notification and messaging, social network support, because as we know, we are all so much more connected on in, in this kind of technological way, kind of infrastructure blueprint and healthcare necessities for populations. So there's a mixed set of capabilities around the world in this region, across and within nations. But I do think we're moving in the right direction and we should continue to bolster state capabilities and cooperation. Kind of connectivity across these types of efforts could help nations in this, in Latin America, in other regions, to be best prepared for navigating these complex and intertwined crises that we know are very much likely to continue to occur throughout this century. Sure. Do you think the, um, I mean, I'm assuming it has, but it'd be good to, to confirm, has the pandemic really accelerated that sort of level of preparedness? The example that you just gave, Andrew, with Mexico, was that something that was in the works and planned in operation prior to the pandemic or did the pandemic really sort of speed up a sort of regional response to that? So that center in of itself was in existence pre-pandemic, but seeing the pandemic has certainly affected a lot of the initiatives and kind of data sharing capabilities in the region, I would say in a positive way in that it's really jump-started more than anything information sharing across different countries, especially in South America. I know Chile, Argentina, Colombia recently kind of also, I believe, created are trying to create a, a vaccine sharing passport and that they could all kind of be in a collective centralized system. So I do think that COVID has accelerated the process of these kinds of systems. I want to add maybe on to that, Zoe, that COVID-19 pandemic is a very unique event, and we haven't seen anything at this scale in a very, very long time. However, I also want to emphasize the public health people who work in the field. We knew that that was sort of somewhere sometime coming because there are certain practices in globally that we all collectively humans are engaged in, like deforestation, like food shortages and looking for the alternative supplies for food. And just globalization in itself is contributing to spread of the zoonotic pathogens. And unfortunately, we knew this was coming, but I don't think anyone would imagine the massive scale that this would unfold into. And I, I think the COVID pandemic has many negative effects, but if we can find a silver line and one silver lining is the rising the awareness, why it is important to look at the pandemic not as a standalone event, but as a complex emergency with, which affects many different aspects of our lives. And it's a type of the health adverse event that we need to be prepared for, forecast, and we need to put a lot of actions into helping the, the nations around the world to be a little bit more resilient. Because one thing... Passengers don't do, they don't have passports and they don't stay in their own countries. They 
travel everywhere and they affect everybody. So if one country is affected, then the other country is affected as well. Same with the climate change. So those I see that very similar. Yeah, for sure. So another question for you both. Nina, you mentioned this in one of your earlier answers. Um, you alluded to this a little bit. Many studies are showing that climate change is disproportionately affecting disadvantaged individuals, meaning that it does actually matter where you live and your level of income. And um, how are healthcare systems addressing health equity issues in relation to climate change? I can take the the first part of that question and maybe leave the the second to Nino. So as we've discussed throughout this conversation, as, as we all know, right, the entire world is and will continue to be impacted by climate change. And as Nino just said, I couldn't agree more with everything she was saying about, you know, there's no borders when it comes to pathogens or climate change impacts. It just, it doesn't work like that. But these issues certainly disproportionately affect vulnerable and minority populations like indigenous people, women, children, and the politically and or economically disenfranchised. I believe just today or yesterday, President Biden released his administration's goal to address extreme heat due to climate change in the U.S. And there's a section that highlights the fact that Black and Latino neighborhoods in urban areas are much more at risk to heat, urban heat island effects than non-Black and non-Latino neighborhoods and zones. Adding kind of expanding that to to a global perspective, economic and political inequality can both be a driver and an outcome of climate security risks. So those that experience the brunt of these risks on a global scale are often the poorest and most vulnerable members of, of society, including women, children, the, the elderly, as, as Nino highlighted. I believe a recent UN brief from, from last year noted that the intersection of high levels of poverty and high levels of exposure to climate-related hazards lead to a higher risk of conflict as well. So this has local implications, but also regional and global security implications as vulnerability among these populations expand over time. So at the minimum, you know, we think that indigenous leaders, women, and and disenfranchised individuals and groups must be actively incorporated into governance processes and local prevention mechanisms to minimize both ecological disruption and the impacts of climate change as well as as these disturbances, whether they be economic, health-related, or, you know, kind of across the board, those impacts to their lives. And maybe I will add to that, Andrea, and and thanks for a nice segue. Climate change definitely affects um, human health and affects the social determinants of health. And I wanted to outline those. That's an ability to access clean air, clean water, food, and shelter. And those factors are critical to all people, obviously. But, but disadvantaged communities are already struggling to securing these social and environmental factors. So it's not surprising to say that, for example, elderly population, population with pre-existing health conditions, children, uh, people in uh, developing countries or in some geographically disadvantaged areas like coastal regions or high mountainous regions, they are most vulnerable in conditions created by climate change and most likely will suffer from the negative consequences, health consequences. I wanted to bring what are the healthcare systems uh, doing to address health equity issues, maybe not directly, but anticipating those climate events or adverse health events, as we call it, and prepare for it is a one way to deal with uh, or, or decreasing inequalities and improve the health outcomes. So for example, a CDC has this initiative and it's a leading public health institution in the United States has the initiative called BRACE, which stands 
guidelines for building resilience against climate effect. And this is a framework that is giving tools and equipping public health officials in a state level or community level to develop the strategies and programs to help communities prepare for the health effects of the climate change. It is a very easy framework. It has five steps and it's forecasting climate event and assessing vulnerabilities, then moving to projecting disease burden because different climate events or natural disasters have a different impact on health, and then assessing public health interventions needed to alleviate the burden, and then obviously implementing and measuring the quality and impact of those interventions to health uh, of communities. And to Andrea's point, I cannot agree more that incorporating representatives of local communities when public health officials are making changes or designing interventions to support communities and at the local level is absolutely critical because we need to create this common trust and the information exchange back and forth between the community and the health officials. But just a, just a few things that can be done. There are lots of tools out there. WHO has created a lot of tools. UN generally has a lot of different tools to deal with the climate change and its effects. It's just sometimes I, I wonder how much people have access to this information and how much that is distilled down to manageable activities because we have to deal, as public health officials, need to deal with a lot of different events, health events. And I don't want this to be overlooked and the continuous rising the awareness of climate change impact of health on health is very important. Thanks. Here's another question to both of you. How can governments act in collaboration with the private sector to address climate change impact on human health? Sure, I, th I think it's just a continuation of my previous answers, so to speak, because we all have responsibilities, right? As Andrea and I have been saying, climate change is not the one person issue. It is not even the one country issue or problem. We are collectively in this, so climate change affects all of us. Therefore, collective actions are needed. And I believe that all of us, ranging from individuals to governments, have the responsibilities uh, to affect, uh, to reverse the outcomes of climate change. So it is very critical for governments, in my humble opinion, to private uh, to partner with private industries and private sector to address the climate change. Governments should engage with private sector to mobilize resources, mobilize knowledge, bring innovation for addressing climate change and promoting green growth, and also quite a lot of times companies do have cutting edge innovations and different digital tools that can actually help with some of the activities that the governments want to take. And some of the lessons learned also can be incorporated into various policies that the governments can create an issue. Because creating the environment for all of us to incorporate sustainable and greener practices are really critical and that is the role of the government in, in my humble opinion. So in addition to the government's actions and activity, the World Health Organization is also doing a lot and they've made some recommendations on creating a climate resilient healthcare system to protect those most vulnerable communities. So Nino, what are some of those key areas that healthcare systems can improve to meet these goals? Sure, thank you Zoe. Climate change has direct impact on human health and we've been saying this and that can be caused from injuries and illness from extreme weather events. As one can imagine, increased disease burden 
burden threatens the capacity of health systems to manage and protect population health. So it is of critical importance that we create climate-resilient health systems, and that's what WHO's operational framework aims to fulfill. And just to maybe expand a little bit, the framework is one of the tools that was created by WHO, and it sort of covers multiple different components, starting from leadership and governance to create the enabling environment in a country to promote the greener practices, to then the other components are educating health workforce and giving them the tools to deal and prepare for the climate events and uh, outcomes of this event. And also they promote health research and health climate research, as well as promotes the vulnerability assessments and understanding and forecasting what events might be happening in the community, which in turn improves the preparedness in the long run, right? When you have information, it's easier to prepare for those events and also create the programs that are climate specific or climate climate informed, so to speak, and as well as maybe secure the funding that will help the communities to deal with aftermath of the natural disasters, climate events, and et cetera. So you mentioned funding there, and I think that was one of the things that was going through my mind as you were speaking. Like, are we seeing governments create enough financing funding to be able to deliver some of these things, you know, critical infrastructure systems, healthcare that's needed across the globe? So, Zoe, I will answer that, and maybe, Andrea, you can add um, uh, some thoughts as well. I have rarely seen the funding earmarked as climate resilience or climate, oh, rather climate change impact on health, something like that. However, if you think about it, there are some indirect outcomes, like, for example, improving infrastructure and making them climate resilient, right? Improving preparedness for different kinds of events, including the natural disasters. So maybe that it doesn't say in the title climate change, but the impacts or the activities are linked directly and indirectly um, to the climate uh, events and the other activities that can cause harm to health, health of population. So from a complex emergency perspective, and also tying back the question of how can governments act in collaboration with the private sector to address climate change's impact, you know, crisis response capabilities are already an integral part of maintaining security across the globe. And these capabilities are beneficial to a state. They contribute to a nation's public image. They lead to stronger international alliances and just essentially the prevention of even graver instabilities. And so considering the pressures that we mentioned, like climate exacerbated events and natural disasters, higher risks of, of, of diseases and and pathogens, we know that nations will be increasingly required to handle these compounding crises, right? So first, I think being open to learning from past experiences, including through that kind of international partnership is incredibly important. You know, an example that comes to mind, Japan has really stepped forward as a complex emergency leader following its catastrophic triple disaster in 2011 that had implications across all, including health and economics and energy and all of these kind of implications. And their triple disaster in 2011 consisted of an earthquake, a tsunami, and a nuclear reactor meltdown. And so the government's response, of course, includes both successes and failures, as you know, as most recently, I believe is this year, they've decided that they're going to release some of the water from those reactors. But these can serve as lessons for other countries experiencing multiple emergencies at once, including from climate and health issues. And so, you know, high level disaster preparedness already form a part of key alliance 
experiences. And so I think bolstering that is incredibly important and directing funding to that is essential. You know, and to bring in the private sector, maybe investment to this government and private sector stakeholders could strengthen this information sharing and channels and kind of springboard discussions regarding complex emergencies across all regions, especially those, again, really hammering this point home, though, to include that climate aspect and how it affects human health and the risks. And so ideally, this would provide a blueprint of how nations could in the future prepare for these intersecting and simultaneous crises in the future. And kind of a last part of this and echoing Nino's reference to to private sector resources is a recommendation, I think, and a call for more investment that relates to harnessing technology, especially the private sector's ability to collect and condense data to things like biosurveillance or kind of a global pathogen early warning system, as well as climate forecasting. So, you know, the former could detect and at the minimum be able to communicate the impact of biological threats. And in terms of climate impacts, we've already seen how powerful it is to input data into visually simulating maps and charts where flooding is going to be a risk, extreme heat, uh, forecasting what what an area could look like under, you know, hot bulb temperatures, how the ecology can change. So essentially incorporating information technology into this approach. And this has already happened successfully. You know, there has been a lot of innovation in this field. So just building off of that will just require closer collaboration, but it's incredibly possible. And I think it's an incredibly powerful tool as well. Right. Thank you, guys. So in in summary, in the light of uh, the the COP26, coming up, are you optimistic that the healthcare sector can meet decarbonization targets and take the necessary steps to ensure that climate mitigation takes place and reverse the course of action? Sure, I'll start with that. Well, there are a few campaigns and roadmaps uh, for healthcare decarbonization. We mentioned some of the tools as well in our conversation. And just to remind listeners, healthcare operations contribute to 4.4% of net global emissions. And even if countries can meet their Paris Agreement commitments, it will cut projected healthcare emissions growth by 70%, which is not enough. And it's kind of ironic that healthcare systems are contributing to the adverse event that causes or harms populations, sort of oxymoron to me. But that's why it is critical for healthcare sector to adopt the mindset for decarbonization, set goals and embark on a very long route for cutting emissions and transitioning to more greener and sustainable ways of operations. And I'm sure a lot of companies and a lot of governments are trying to do that, but we need to collectively have that mindset that this is happening and we need to help each other, help companies and help healthcare sector to meet those very ambitious goals in the long run. So I'd say following up on that, expanding that perspective from just kind of a global viewpoint looking down. At this point in time, to be quite honest, reversing the course may be out of reach, but I am optimistic about mitigating against the most severe impact. You know, serious adaptation will be required to mitigate climate impacts that have been locked in, and we must take those seriously and develop interconnected systems. So as, you know, this discussion 
discussion has really highlighted kind of that climate in those health systems that are made to respond to these complex situations. We're at a very interesting point in time where we can both curb our greenhouse gas emissions while bolstering our existing response capabilities to be able to address some of the inevitable impacts that we are already seeing, right? So because it is essentially a guarantee that these complex emergencies, we're just going to continue to see them. So stakeholders around the world, I think, should maybe shift their threat perception and preparedness efforts towards this multifaceted, complex, converging crises, many of which have been locked in from past policy and governance decisions. So, you know, we have the foresight, I think, to anticipate these emergencies right now. And and all governments and, and institutions and sectors and organizations have the opportunity to improve in this area. So we can really mitigate the risk and minimize their impact and incorporating this complex risk lens into our national, global, regional emergency responses, I believe, is a big part of that. And on that note, Nino and Andrea, thank you so much for joining us today and giving us your expert views and for opening our eyes to just how much climate change is impacting everyone's health and lives across the world. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you have any questions or comments or would like to get in touch with us, you can find our details on the podcast landing page. Be sure to join us in the next episode as we continue our journey to Singapore to discuss net zero cities, sparking real conversations with the intention to collaborate, act, commit to real change. See you soon.